It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live! Woohoo! Ooh, I'm pinning those meters. And today, we are having our very special guest, Miss Erin Jacobson! Yo, Erin! <laughs> Uh, she is one of two attorneys that don't make me want to throw up. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> there are only two that I've ever met that I actually like. Oh, you know what I forgot to do is open my chat room. Let's get that open. Um, okay. Want to, uh, hang on, everybody. I am opening the chat room. YouTube Studio. Oh my goodness, I was busy solving a tech problem before and I actually forgot to open my own chat room. This is so embarrassing, fixing stuff on live TV. How will I ever deal with the embarrassment? Okay. It happens. It does. <laughs> happens. Don't worry. All the time to me. It's I need like a crew, but you're looking at the crew pretty much. Um, okay, the chat room is open and all is good uh they can see us okay hi aaron <laughs> hi michael how are you i'm good thanks good to see your face we haven't seen yeah, that much of each too. other um but i will see you at road rally 2022 the weekend of november 4th 5th and 6th right here in los angeles i haven't invited you to be on something yet but i'm sure that i will so Mark it in your, in your book, Hot Date with Lasco, first weekend in November. And I want to read you guys who are watching today's extravaganza, Erin's um, bio, and then she's going to give you a little legal disclaimer that they teach you to do in law school so that you don't get yourself in trouble. But Erin M. Jacobson, Esquire, is an internationally recognized attorney who protects independent, established, and legacy songwriters and artists independent music publishers <laughs> you know sometimes you see a word and you think it's something else it says distinguished legacy catalogs i thought it said disgruntled legacy catalogs heirs <laughs> <laughs> and estates uh grammy and emmy award winners and other music professionals at her law practice based in beverly hills california Ms. Jacobson has been named as one of the top music lawyers by Billboard and has been featured in publications including Billboard and Forbes and on networks including ABC and the BBC. In addition, Aaron is the author of my favorite title in the world, Don't Get Screwed, <laughs> How to Protect Yourself as an Independent Musician and the founder and owner of Indie Artist Resource, which you can go to to get contracts. You guys are always calling us, where can I see a typical agreement for this or for that? You can get that and much more there. Indie Artist Resource, a company that empowers independent musicians to take charge of their careers with contract templates and educational materials. So welcome, Aaron. They are applauding so loudly for you. They just love you. I know, I was you. waiting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little slow on the draw there. Uh, so I want, oh, there's she, uh, Liz, just put your link in, in the chat room for everybody. And hello to all you guys in the chat room. Good to see hi, you. Hi, everyone. I can't see the chat, but hi. Nah. <laughs> we try to keep her in I'll the dark as much as possible um anyway these questions are questions that liz got uh whatever the deadline was friday or something and they are in the order that they came in 
so nothing's getting skipped over. And then once we get through these, if we do, in fact, get through all of them, uh, then we'll take some questions from the, the chat room as well. So let's jump right in with our first question. This is from Wait, Michael. Michael. Oh, the, right. <laughs> Go for it. I forgot the disclaimer. Only for entertainment purposes. Right. Yeah. So just anything I say on here, any answers, whatever, is not legal advice. It's just for informational and entertainment purposes only. Uh, it doesn't create any attorney-client relationship between me and anyone on here unless that person actually is a client. Um, and uh, so if you have a legal issue, seek an attorney experience in your jurisdiction um, and if anything I say is an advertisement it's general in nature and not directed towards any specific person wow there you go <laughs> you, you did it so much better than the last time I did it very I, impressive. I've had practice <laughs> I could tell good job well you do speak you. at a lot of conferences and a lot of online thingies so I understand because yeah People can misconstrue stuff unless you're very specific and upfront. All right. Uh, I don't really understand this one, but I'm going to go for it anyway. This is from Michael Bruce Miller, and Michael says, I know Taxi doesn't want members to charge people to submit their non-member works. In other words, yeah, I don't want members saying, hey, my neighbor John, who's got a studio and has music, uh, I'm gonna charge you and uh, send in some music for you to taxi. He says, if I have a signed agreement with the non-member that allows me to pitch a non-member work to a service like taxi or other music library supervisors, etc., is that generally acceptable? Um, that's one thing, I'm gonna answer that because that's really a, a question for taxi and Aaron will back me up on this answer and then I'll read the rest, which is probably a, a lawyer answer. Um, the reason we don't allow that, Michael, uh, there are several reasons, but you know, even though you've got an agreement, we'd have to review your agreement to make sure that it would hold up in a court of law if God forbid it ever got that far. And we don't have the bandwidth, manpower, or resources to review or the legal expertise. And I can't afford to pay Aaron every time I want one of these reviewed. So the answer is no. Unfortunately, your agreement to us means nothing. No offense to you, but no. Um, so, and am I correct in saying it like that, Aaron, that, uh, yeah, we'd have to review his agreement before? Yeah, I mean, in a non-taxi situation, for example, a licensee is going to go to every single owner to license their share. Right. Um, and so the person that would have the ability, if there was an agreement between co-writers or collaborators, they would have a written agreement that they would have to show that yes I have this permission to license this work on behalf of um, you know the, my collaborators but um, you know it's kind of different when submitting through an organization like taxi because you know as terms of membership and all that stuff you guys are gonna have your own rules and procedures as to how how that's going to work so um you know there's other aspects that we could go into about copyright and joint works and stuff like that but it doesn't apply as much to sinks because um 
licensees, like I said, are always, regardless of the law, they're still always going to go to, to everybody because they don't want to get in trouble um, that, you know, that they licensed on behalf, you know, with one person on behalf of three writers and the other writers going, well, I never licensed this. So, um, so even though copyright owners can enter into non-exclusive licenses, licensees for sync are still going to go to all the all the co-owners to license each share separately and the rest of his question um circles around that general thing so let me read the rest um how should i handle a collaboration i.e the member contributes to the work should i get assigned should i get signed clearances from all parties to the collaboration or is my having a hand in the production of the work enough license to pitch it how much of a role do i need to have in the creation of a work to be considered a collaborator if i record mix and master the recording is that enough um how okay then he's got another question after that so can you answer the second half of that mm -hmm. yeah so there's a difference between a collaborator and a co-owner or co-writer um usually production or engineering or stuff like that is not enough to make you a co-owner um so i mean if it was maybe like co-writers or something like that that would be different usually like the engineer in the studio is not gonna have a right to pitch something you know just because that person engineered the recording i mean producers Usually not, but, you know, via agreement, they might be a master owner. So it kind of depends on the situation, but it's not an automatic thing. So it really kind of depends on what the circumstances are. Yeah, you know, uh, imagine that you go to John's recording studio on the other side of town and you pay John a few hundred dollars to record a session. That doesn't give John the right to shop your stuff around. Uh, and to, to translate uh, what Aaron just said, not translate, but to further the thought. Yeah, if you go to John's studio and, and say, I don't have any money, and John says, well, I really like what you're working on, I will front you the studio time. I'll give you the studio time, but I want to own or co-own the masters. That's a different legal arrangement in which he might have the right to shop the masters, but then again, he doesn't own the composition in which you need an agreement <laughs> so yes you gotta you gotta like work around all these things and um yeah you wouldn't own the composition unless maybe that was also part of the deal if the artist and the writer were the same person or something like that but um but yeah i mean these would all thing be things via agreement that that would be agreed upon between the parties so um like I said, it just depends. And if you are gonna do some sort of scenario, it really needs to be in writing, one, for everybody's protection and to be clear about what's happening, and two, because like I said, any licensee, sorry, there's a little fly. Uh, sure. That, you know, any licensee is gonna, want to see a document to show that the person saying that they have the authority to issue the license has the actual authority to issue the license on behalf of everyone. 
God, that's so much to remember. Um, I'm gonna run <laughs> a scenario by you that I just heard about an hour before we went live today, okay. and I won't use any names to protect the innocent. So a taxi member was forwarded by taxi, a couple pieces of music to a production music library, and the member didn't wanna sign the deal and waved off, and that was that. At some point in the future, I don't know if it was six months later, a year later, two years later, who knows, um, that same taxi member decided to hire a quote-unquote song plugger for tw a 25% commission. Excuse me. And at some point, the song plugger, and apparently I haven't looked at the agreement. A couple people on my staff looked at the agreement and went, whoa, pretty cheesy-looking agreement, but we're not lawyers, so we'll, we won't comment in detail on that but the so the the member signed this cheesy agreement with the song plugger and at some point the song plugger sold his catalog with the retitled versions of those two songs that she decided not to sign through the taxi introduction plus five more by sheer coincidence the song plugger sold his catalog or the rights to his non-exclusive catalog to the very library just by coincidence that uh, she didn't want to do a deal with i mean what are the yeah. odds but stuff happens and now Small she's blamed yeah she's blaming taxi holding taxi responsible for this somehow um is there any uh does she have a leg to stand on this sounds like we should be talking in consultation. <laughs> no, I mean, even I know there's nothing. Yeah. I mean, she no, was I mean, pre pre presented to a person to do, you know, a deal with, didn't yeah, do it, walked away I mean, from it. Right. And then this person sold, happened to sell to this library. I mean, that had nothing to do with taxi or even this taxi member. Right. Really. Right. So, so we're innocent is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, not render a legal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. That was very entertaining, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm. It's. No, I won't comment further. Anyway, uh, okay. Last part of Bruce uh, Michael Bruce Miller's question: How do I check that YouTube, Spotify, and other online music services have the correct correct ISRC codes and are reporting downloads as required by law? Um, you know, I don't really get into that part of it too much. I would say check with the distributor because they're the ones that are interfacing with the the DSPs. So I would say start there. I agree. Yeah, it's not a legal question. That's more of a mechanical, well, not, not mechanicals in the music right. business sense, but yeah. Okay, this one is from Robert Romero. And he says, about 20 years ago, I signed a song with a publisher in Tennessee, whom I found out later had changed a couple lines and made himself a co-writer. The song was recorded by a Christian slash gospel artist. However, I still like my original version and demo. Question is, am I still free to pitch the original to artists or is he forever a co-writer? That's a good question. Yeah, it kind of depends. Um, so, sometimes when you when a songwriter signs with a publisher and they assign the copyright to the publisher that also allows the publisher to make changes or create derivative works um so it could depend how the copyright was originally 
registered? Was it originally, is the only registration this version with the, the material that the publisher added? Um, was there a separate registration prior? How much of it was actually changed? Did the publisher have the right to make the changes? Um, so there's a lot of kind of factors that, that go into it, but if the publisher, if like that's the only copyright the publisher did have the right to make the changes and so, um, you know, the writer, the original writer may have a problem uh, using the original version. So, I mean, again, it would have to be looked into with more details, but it's possible that there could be a problem using that original version. I know an artist that's had like 25 number one songs in his very lengthy career dating back to the late 60s. Uh, and at some point he did, I believe, get back his, he lost a bunch of, he was touring the globe and when his stuff became available for him to buy his catalog back, he was out of the country, didn't know about it because of mail not getting to him or whatever. Missed the boat on that. Somebody else got it. He eventually, I believe, was able to buy his copyrights from the other person that had purchased mm -hmm. them. But he released an album of exact soundalikes of his original material because the labels still own the masters. And so he, once he got the copyrights, he said, well, I can make a record that sounds exactly like this. So now I own the masters, I own the copyright and put it out there. I mean, we all know the songs. They get licensed all the time. And I thought that was a really smart move. That's totally kosher, right? Yeah, that's a different situation right. than this question that we were just answering. So, um, yeah, so recording agreements usually have re-recording restrictions. Um, in them and then after that restriction period is over the artist can re-record new masters and this has actually become a common practice uh, especially with legacy artists that they've like this late you know they'll say like this label's had these masters for the last 30 years and you know we're still making that same piddly little royalty for <laughs> when we signed with them and so yeah so for licensing and for other reasons they'll go into the studio and they'll re-record um, and they'll, yeah, they'll do sound effects. They'll try and get them exactly, you know, as close to the original masters as they can. And sometimes they get very close and sometimes they don't get quite that close. Um, cause sometimes these people sound different, um, you know, 30 years later, but, um, but this was a big thing too with Taylor Swift because her masters got sold and uh, she did not want them sold to the person that they got sold to. Um, and her re-recording restriction had just, it was at the time of the dispute, it was almost ending. And then it had, and since then for some of the albums, it has just ended within the last year or so. Um, and so, yeah, she was, she's been in the process of re-recording all her early albums. Wow. What a pain in the took us. Yeah, but I mean, the thing for her is she still sounds the same. So, yeah. I mean, she has, whereas I've dealt with licensing situations where it's really not the same. Um, so her doing it at this point in her career is actually, uh, you know, gives her advantage uh, yeah. in, that, but to, in that respect. To say that she sang it with 
you know, her golden throat. Well, now it's more layers of gold plating on that throat. I wonder if having a ton of money makes you sound different when you sing. Um, <laughs> that's the engineer in me just wondering. Uh, right. Okay, this one is from JC and Nancy Mathis. Give guidelines for rewriting a 150-year-old Civil War song. Well, there's a question we've never had before. Using the same melody but changing most of the wording. Under what conditions would I own or control the rights to the new version? So in that case, it would be a new arrangement or a new version, derivative work of a public domain composition, most likely since it's 150 years old, unless there's some special circumstance where somebody has some other arrangement or something. So, But assuming that we're going back to the original original that is in the public domain, um, so this new version would be a new arrangement or a derivative work um, in which only the new elements added would be protected. So it would be a new arrangement, um, but from a copyright perspective, you can't claim a copyright on a pub public domain. Um, so it would be the, the new stuff would be what's protected, the new elements. So. I want a clarification on those new elements. Obviously, they can't be extricated. Like you couldn't take out the the new lyric without the melody would be meaningless pretty much. I mean, I'm sure it could be protected. Probably. But so does anybody ever do a calculation or parse out what the value of those new elements is so that if somebody wanted to monetize their copyright on those new elements how who determines look you know what let's say the lyrics are a hundred percent new but the melody is the old um melody from 150 years ago is it a 50 50 because lyrics and melody are equally weighted how does that work well it's it depends on what situation you're looking at the value um, and the ownership. So, and, you know, because you can register a new arrangement on ASCAP, VMI, et cetera. Sometimes certain labels will not want to pay the mechanicals on the entire composition. So they might look at it and say hmm. that it's, you know, a 50-50 or something because it's just lyrics and not the, the music or the melody, whatever. Um, but from like an infringement perspective or a usage perspective then it's more like okay if somebody used the you know the public domain elements then it can't be infringement but if somebody's using these new lyrics without permission then it would be the infringement on on those elements so it's kind of different as to like payment versus what you're actually protecting complicated world it really is thank goodness the music industry is its own little yeah <laughs> I, I, you know obviously the internet has changed everything in our lives but it just further complicates matters because it used to be as simple as music on a tape play it to a thing creates a, a stamper press out a piece of vinyl stick it in a sleeve right. and sell it and now it's much more complicated all right well i mean it could have been like what if somebody wrote lyrics to like a beethoven song or something like that you know i mean then you would have that kind of situation 
Yeah. As well. So. So here's a little insider info. The Eagles, when they used to master their records, I was friends with the guy who mastered like one of these nights in maybe Hotel California and would hang out with him late at night in the mastering room learning what I could about mastering. And uh, the Eagles would have little secret messages written in the lead-out groove of the vinyl. So, you know, it may be a funny little inside joke to their manager or to each other or something like that. So that is actually imprinted on millions of pieces of vinyl. Could somebody <laughs> claim copyright on that? <laughs> I guarantee you've never been asked that question. I've never been asked that question. Um, I mean, it's just like a, a phrase or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it could be like the sun's always shining when you're in the room. Something totally inane right. or, or, you know, your dog spot um, doesn't have a spot on it. But Well, I suppose if it was unique enough um, and if they if they file the copyright for the album as a whole and that was included in the deposit copy then maybe um deposit copy meaning literally like a physical copy that goes yeah, on a well, shelf that somewhere time, yeah i mean yeah. now people just send an mp3 but um yeah i mean at the time they would have had to have sent like an actual tape or a vinyl or something to the copyright office. <laughs> One um, of the guys in the chat room said, wow, left an attorney speechless? That's a first. <laughs> I retained my speech. I just That's had a right. moment of pause. I don't know why you do these shows with me. I, can't, I, I'm, I know it's so much less professional than other people's shows with you, but you have fun. <laughs> it is. Anyway, I remember... Uh, the Eagles, there was a famous quote from Don Henley talking about uh, Irving Azoff, their manager, who's famous for being a tough little guy in the industry. You don't screw around with Irving Azoff. And uh, Henley said, yeah, Irving is the devil, but at least he's our devil. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, All right. The Beatles had a dog whistle on uh, Sgt. Pepper. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I wouldn't say that would necessarily be copyrightable, but fun fact. I never thought about that. Yeah, what if you played a melody line that couldn't be heard, but it was there, you know, you could find the evidence that it existed because right. dog whistles. That sounds with... like a court case. <laughs> yeah, it really does. <laughs> Huey Lewis stole my dog whistle. Um, <laughs> sorry, Huey. Uh, from <laughs> This one's from Anthony Scott. Sciala, S-I-A-L-L-A, Sciala. I've been waiting for a sync fee for a Showtime series that aired in December of 2021 from a publisher. The publisher stated it's just a big biz with stacks of contracts and payments to get through. Is that the norm now? I've been qu paid quicker in the past sometimes in advance of air dates. How long should I wait? What recourse do I have? Well, if when they pay really depends on the network. There are certain networks, no, Michael, I'm not going to say which ones, but there's certain networks <laughs> that are kind of notorious for taking a while to pay. Um, and others pay much faster, but I mean, really, it's the publisher's responsibility. They should be staying on it because, you know, it's them getting paid too, as well as the writer. So, yeah. um, you know, they should they should be the one that's 
that's following up on it. Um, you know, recourse, I, you know, I don't know what the agreement is. So, you know, it depends on uh, kind of who has what rights, uh, whether it's exclusive, non-exclusive admin, assignment of copyright, I don't know. So. Yeah, it's. Contract. I remember uh, a very smart, astute, music library owner that I know. He, he is one of the better business people in that industry. And he confided in me a couple of years ago that one of the networks, I'll give you a hint, had three letters in its name. Um, one of the networks hadn't paid him in almost two and a half years. Yeah. So. I know which one you're talking about. I, I don't, it, do they do that to hold on to a few million dollars and make an extra, know. you know, 2% know interest why. on it? They just they just do, and it, and nobody, everybody sits there going, why does it take that long? It shouldn't take this long. I mean, people use COVID as an excuse, which you could for maybe one oh, quarter was, before COVID. was pre-COVID. <laughs> way, way, like people were complaining, yeah. you know, six years ago about this and stuff. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, every every business does their business differently so here's a trick question were one of the three letters a c <laughs> i'm not going to answer that question <laughs> I, I was making a joke because many of them yes. have a c many <laughs> all of them actually yes. oh that's true they do yeah um okay this one's from Kristen de quattro i manage the artist don campbell and his band the don campbell band it's nice to meet you we have an idea for a tribute tour that would entail performing a variety of deceased musicians' work. The artists may include David Bowie, Ray Charles, Jerry Garcia, Hal Ketchum, and others. The show would be performed live and presented as a full-length concert celebrating the spirit of these influential artists. There would be no official recordings of these covers. They would only be performed live. Would we need to obtain a mechanical license, pay royalties, or would this concept open us up to any liability? So mechanical royalties are for recording and distribution. Um, so if there's no recordings at all happening, um, then probably no mechanical license is needed. As far as performance of a cover song that should be covered by the venue's performance license uh, with ASCAP and BMI. Um, and I mean, the other thing is like if there's audiovisual elements like videos playing in the background or something, then there might be some sync right triggered. Mm. So that could be an issue. Um, but then kind of if it's just like playing some covers, it's one thing, but if it's kind of like billing the whole show as like tribute to these people and using their names and likenesses or anything like that, like then you start running into name and likeness rights and stuff. So, um, or there could be some, people could think there's some sort of association. Some of these people have their names trademarked or, you know, if they were in a band, there's like trademarks on the band names and stuff. So. Um, really in this type of situation, you would have to look at everything that you're doing and then see what rights are triggered or not triggered. Um, so it would really be an analysis of how this is actually, what the intention is, how, to, how they want this to 
to function and what they want to do and then look at the rights associated with each aspect of that. So what about a tribute act? Excuse me, you mentioned, um, you know, likeness rights, etc. Yeah. What about a tribute act where people in the band will literally dress up like the four Beatles right. or, or whomever um, they're tr paying tribute to? Yeah, I mean, sometimes the original artists will go after the tribute bands and shut them down. Um, and I've dealt with some of those issues where they say that they're infringing and um, things like hmm. that. And sometimes they just ignore them and it you know but there is kind of that area there where sometimes sometimes the tribute bands can face liability could they go back in arrears and, and like sue them let's say a tribute band has been playing you know a show a month for 10 years and that they charge ten thousand dollars a show could the act that was the, the inspiration for the tribute yeah. sue them um historically for all those shows I mean, it it depends on what what the suit is based on. I mean, because there's statute of limitations depending on what causes of action you're you're mm -hmm. suing under, and you know there's trademark issues and stuff. So I mean, this is because I don't do litigation; it's really not my area. Um, but that's that's kind of a crafting a litigation strategy. Um, but in certain cases, the the damages get limited to a certain amount of time if there's, you know, a statute of limitations on a, on a cause of action that they're using as part of the lawsuit. Um, so it depends depends how they're going about it. I'm not speaking as an attorney, <laughs> as you well know, uh, <laughs> but I would think that there's some teeth there under certain circumstances because mm -hmm. you are trying to mimic their image and you are using their songs, which, yeah, the song, you're going to get paid through the license through ASCAP right. and BMI from the venue, uh, the original artist or songwriter will. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, you are coming up with a name that is either a, a derivative of a song, famous song of theirs or a derivative of their name. You've got the same number of people wearing costuming that looks like what they wore, wearing wigs to look like what they look like. You are trading off of their image and earning mm -hmm. money from it. I would think that somebody should, uh, some lawyer should specialize it because I think it's cool that mm -hmm. bands do it actually. And they, you know, they should have a thing where, okay, the band that was the inspiration band gets you know 500 bucks a performance or something because you're copying their stuff but you know who am i just a lay person um <laughs> all right next one is from ulrich florian and Ulrich asks, in order not to mess up my remote chances to land a submission on Taxi, oh, come on. Let's I, think positive. Yeah, gee, what a downer. Ulrich, come on, dude, lift it up. You can do it. <laughs> I only want to sign one PRO publishing, what? Pro-publishing. Yeah, pro-publishing oh, pro publishing deal with CD Baby that is for one single song, knowing I would never submit to Taxi. But leaving my other songs on the simple, normal, standard distribution level without monetizing additions. But when I was about to sign it on the very last step before submitting the form, there was a sentence that read, more or less, that by signing this contract, CD Baby would be in charge of 
any of my songs to be released, notifying ASCAP about these releases in order to confirm that Gemma, the German PRO, in order to inform Gemma, the German PRO, sorry. What bothers me about it is the wording for any future song. So yeah, that certainly deserves a little clarification. Yeah, well, so I can't speak for CD Baby specifically. I haven't read the, you know, these specific terms that that this person is um, talking about. But, you know, generally with these types of accounts, if you sign up for the publishing part of it, it's for anything that's in the account. So I don't think that they necessarily, I mean, some might, but I don't know that they necessarily will let you say like, okay, these songs are part of publishing and these songs are only for distribution or vice versa or whatever. So I think it's a situation where if you opt into that service, you're opting into that service for everything that's in the account. So if there's something where they only want, you know, one song or whatever, like maybe there's a way to, to do that where it's administered separately. Yeah, I mean, you could always come up with a whole separate entity and, and set up that entity with an account through CD Baby for just that one song, but that sounds expensive, complicated, and probably could poke holes in it. Yeah, um, I mean, I would say contact the CD Baby or whatever distributor you wanna, you're looking to go through. I think the CD baby is now like college age. It's no longer a baby. Just maybe I should yeah. call somebody and inform it. It's like it's CD true. baby. I think it's like 20 years old or something. Yeah. Um, and and a college kid. <laughs> I mean, how ironic that CD baby, you know, CDs are almost like almost not a thing anymore. Um, well, that the were a thing when it started. Yeah, but the name hasn't gone out of fashion. You would think that somebody, because there have been like three owners now of that company, that somebody would have rebranded. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> MP3, baby. Um, yeah. so, so if I happen to write, Ulrich went on to add a little follow-up here. So if I happen to write a piece of music in the future that I don't give a chance to be submitted to Taxi, if I submit this single piece to TuneCore instead of CD Baby, would this actually affect all the other songs I really don't want to monetize this? I guess it's just a, a follow-on to the same question. Um, well, I, th I think it's like, again, it's like opting into the publishing is going to control like whatever's in that account. And if you have other songs elsewhere, then that's probably separate. But again, you really have to read the terms and conditions and make a legal judgment yeah. on that or you know you could ask the their customer service or whatever ask that robot that answers the phone okay next right. one is from john <laughs> weber and john asks what are the average rates upfront fee and royalty percentage if somebody wants to license one of your songs there's no average. Why do publisher? Okay, that's just he's got three questions. So let's take the first one. What are the average okay. rates of a sync fee and royalty percentage if somebody wants to license one of your songs? Well, I think there's two two separate things there because the sync fee to license the song that 
totally depends on the song, the show, the network, the production budget, the type of use, the territory, the media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these variables. So there's no average fee. Um, for a, a sync, there's usually not a royalty percentage after it unless it's like you also negotiate some like per unit DVD sale or something. It's like, again, who's buying DVDs now? Um, so there could be that, but there's not really a royalty percentage normally for just a sync license. Um, so I don't know if, if this person's also asking about maybe like signing with a library and then what's like the, the royalty percentage they would get from signing with a library. Um, but that's different. So that's different than just a sync be if again i'm not an attorney i think we all know that but <laughs> i would say just as a casual lay observer who happens to be in the business on a daily basis yes. that you know for a, a tv show that's going to be on one of the four big broadcast networks mm -hmm. which tend to pay more larger audiences etc the, the sync fees, which you generally split 50-50 with the, the publisher of the production music library, the sync fees generally range 2500 Depending on the agreement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But generally, not entirely or always, but, you know, kind of 2500-ish to maybe 5000-ish for somebody who is not famous or not like right. a, a baby band that's starting to blow up and get some traction or something. So for the average person, 2,500 to 5K for a sync fee. Now, piece of music that's gonna go, uh, you know, 13 seconds of instrumental going in a reality show on MTV, goose eggs. Um, everybody's forgotten, by the way, that MTV was, I believe, the first place to start paying no sync fees. And everybody's like, oh my God, they're evil. And now people love MTV because their shows are repeated so often and syndicated all over the world that the back end they make on, on mm. shows like uh, Catfish, for instance, can be pretty substantial. Anyway, um, okay. Oh, by the way, a sync fee, like if you are... If it's a very famous song, could be five figures, six figures. And if it's um, a song, let's say you're a baby band that's starting to get some traction, that you kind of have a following on TuneCore or whatever, you might get 10,000 bucks. But again, you're going to be splitting it most likely with a publisher of one sort or another. So just keep that in mind. And you do have to pay taxes. There's that. Um, next question from John Weber. Why do publishers want to own your songs instead of just licensing them? Well, one, it's an asset for their business, and two, they have more control, basically. If you were in their shoes, you'd want to. You'd want it to, <laughs> exactly. Uh, do most publishers have a sunset clause, or is that always negotiated? That's a very good question. Yeah, so we don't really call them sunset clauses in publishing agreements. They're basically just reversions. Um, and usually they're not in there automatically unless it's some like super writer-friendly company that wants to structure their business that way. Um, but normally any reversions have to be negotiated. 
Uh, okay, moving on. This one's from Mark Morganshaw. Hello, Mark. Um, last month, my TuneSat picked up 22 detections from an ad for a German supermarket. They used an instrumental cue that we co-wrote for a taxi listing back in 2016, which was returned by taxi, subsequently signed to several non-exclusive libraries in 2018. It's definitely our cue, and there are no loops or recognizable samples used in the track that might trigger false detection, and my WAV file can be matched up perfectly along the audio clip of the ad. We were hoping we may have earned a small sync fee. However, when we reached out to the three non-exclusive libraries that we have the track signed with, they all said they hadn't licensed it to anyone. Two of the libraries are here in the UK, and one is a taxi-friendly library. That doesn't mean anything. I'm not not in the you know not in the legal world. Taxi's not endorsing any library. <laughs> That's right, damn it. Um, let's see, taxi-friendly library in the U.S. One of the U.K. publishers has been very helpful and contacted their German office on behalf, but they said they definitely haven't licensed it or had any dealings with the particular supermarket chain. After numerous calls, we don't seem to be able to track down who it was licensed from. We've tried emailing and calling the supermarket head office in Germany, but we don't speak the language and whoever works the reception desk doesn't speak English and just hangs up on us. Wow. Um, how dare it? Wow, this is a long damn question, Mark. Uh, <laughs> holy crap. That's a book, not a question. We tried sending emails to the main email address and also likely looking people from their also likely and likely looking people from their contact page for their marketing department, but they've all gone unanswered. Coincidentally, hold on, I'm going to go have lunch because there's still about <laughs> half as much of this left over. Dear God, Mark. Coincidentally, whilst licensing, license, listening, sorry, I can't read, while listening to an interview last week by the CEO of a large exclusive publisher here in the UK, he spoke about how they had numerous tracks used in ads and promos that they knew they hadn't licensed but had been picked up by their detection software. Turned out the tracks have been lifted from their source audio page by a third party and uploaded to a large music aggregator in another territory and retitled to avoid detection. Holy crap, this is complicated. The clients had paid what they thought was a legitimate license fee to use the tracks, but the person who uploaded them had no right to do so. Oh my God, time to call a litigation attorney. I'm starting to think this could be the case with our track too, but it's hard to be sure. We don't seem to be getting very far with our PRO, uh, which is PRS in parentheses. They said we should wait until it's meant to show up in our statement, which is around 18 months away as it had to go from Gemma first. Doesn't appear at any point, they said, to get back in touch. It doesn't, and if it doesn't appear that at any point they said to get back in touch. We're not sure what to do next. Do you have any thoughts on this type of situation or ideas on what else we should do? Got all that? I don't know if they're going to like the answer, but my answer would be to hire a lawyer in Germany, a music copyright lawyer in Germany um, to go after it. Another thing that wasn't mentioned in here is the actual ad agency. 
Um, if you Google the name of the supermarket chain and ad agency, first of all, you need somebody who speaks German, fluent German, here and wherever you are located. I think you're in the UK. So get somebody to Google ad agency of record for that supermarket chain because chances are that ad agency produced the spot and nobody at the supermarket chain, probably even their VP of marketing, is gonna know where the hell the music came from. But the ad agency will, just a guess. Hello, you there? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm naughty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm naughty or nodding off? I'm nodding, no. <laughs> yeah. No. That's one avenue, but yeah, you need somebody that that speaks the language, and you know, I mean, it sounds like an infringement. So, yeah, I mean, I would say to find a lawyer in Germany. A lot of the lawyers will speak English as well, so they'll be able to. Yeah, you know. uh, and, and from their source audio page by a third party, so their tracks have been lifted. I didn't know that this practice goes on. And again, yeah, that sounds like a whole lot of wrong. Yeah, this is hearsay. <laughs> you know, it's going from one person to another to this, and I'm reading it out loud. So I don't know if this is exactly correct or not, but if it is, this is a problem. A uh, large music aggregator in another territory and retitled to avoid detection. Wow. That's skeezy. All right, next question from Philip Lopez. I have a copyrighted original song and copyrighted original story published by me that I want to pay to have put into an animated cartoon. The question is, what do I have to do to secure copyright publishing and animation rights in the finished product? All three phases. Do you understand that? I'm a little... No. I don't really understand the question because he's saying that he already has copyrighted song and story, so I don't understand what he has to secure. And he wants to pay to have it put in an animated cartoon. Does that mean that he wants to hire an animator? Or does he That's want to... That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, but, is I mean, he talking? In that case, you need like a work for hire agreement, but yeah, um, you know. But I don't know. Is he trying to pay to put it in an existing show or animated show or something? I don't know. Please need, clarify. Yeah, we need more details on that. Um, okay, and the next one is from Michelle and Todd Lindley. When hiring musicians or singers to perform on a song, what paperwork needs to be filled out if they've been paid in advance and have no rights or interest in the royalties? Now, there's a question we understand. This is a work for hire agreement. Um, so I always recommend these whenever people are having musicians or singers or anybody perform on their songs. Um, so that way it's spelled out who owns it, what they're getting paid, what they're entitled to as far as royalties, um, all that kind of stuff, because it then, you know, hopefully avoids the problem of them, these people coming back later and going, well, I'm not getting any royalties on this. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, always recommend work for hire agreements, um, depending on 
you know, how complicated the situation is. It might be something that would need to be specifically drafted for the project or, you know, could also potentially use a, a template off Indie Artist Resource or which we have work for hire templates um, on there as well. So, but yeah, that's, you want it to be spelled out. I had multiple clients that have had this problem that they don't get the, you know, usually like before they hired me and then it's you know that they didn't get the agreements when they did the last record and now people are like oh that knocking on the door oh that song is making money where's my royalties and it's like yeah don't get any my synth <laughs> line is integral to the popularity of that song That's therefore right. i should That's be a right. co-writer yep <laughs> dun, dun, dun. i don't want to hum the whole line but do you think i'm sexy i think was one of those cases was that, it yeah i believe so um I'm going to have to look that up. I think so. Uh, Great song. Great yeah. record. I actually was a little rookie at Criteria Studios. I was 19 years old, and Tom Dowd and Arif Martin, two legendary producers, playing mm. pinball on the backside of this control room wall. They were working with Rod Stewart on that record. Mm -hmm. And I interrupted their pinball game to ask them, how do you make a hit record? <laughs> and they looked at me like, oh my God. Anyway, uh, through the wall, I could hear, da, 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 da. I won't sing the rest of the line. Uh, and, and I believe that that ended up in a lawsuit because it was just a line, the keyboard player name was Dwayne Hitchings, I believe. I can't believe I remember that for 50 years almost. Um, and it was, I mean, by my, in my opinion, that line really made that song. Uh, it would have been up right now. Sure, go for it. <laughs> We've got time. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, Rod Stewart. Do you think I'm sexy? Yeah, you know how to Google, right? All right, we'll go to Wikipedia. Yeah, because that's... Well, Dwayne yeah. was one of the co-writers, it says. Oh, wow. I Rod, can't believe... Carmen, Apis, and Dwayne, produced by Tom. Uh, Not bad for an old dude's memory. Yeah, good job. Um, oh, no, it was... Well, according to Wikipedia, so, you know, I'm not Gospel. claiming whether this is correct <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, there was a lawsuit by a Brazilian musician uh, claiming the chorus had been derived from his song Taj Mahal, which was settled mm -hmm. amicably. And then in Stewart's 2012 autobiography to Unconscious Plagiarism, um, of that same song. Oh, here's your part that you're talking about. He admitted he had consciously lifted the song signature synthesizer riff from the string arrangement on Bobby Womack's If You Want My Love, Put Something Down on It. Wow. So, and then there's, on the Wikipedia page, there's Stuart's opinion on whether that's okay or not. Interesting. All right, well, I was almost correct. Okay. And I did remember Dwayne Hitching's name. I can't. You did. Uh, yeah, that and was he had, very good. He had blonde hair, just in case you were wondering. 
All right. <laughs> I'm so glad I know that. <laughs> I could actually still in my mind's eye like see that whole moment. It's pretty funny. Um, oh, by the way, I just saw uh, Philip Lopez chimed in with a little more clarification oh. on that previous right. question. I'm going to go see if I can find that. Philip Lopez says, the animator pay for my own show. I don't oh, know. Oh, so the animator's paying for the show, but he wants to, but Philip wants to make sure he owns it. So agreement, you need an agreement. Well, I can recommend an excellent attorney. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see, this one is from Atlee Bacon. If possible, how to best ensure that several co-writers of a song will agree to just the writer's share? I've heard about the app slash webpage session.id. Any thoughts or pitfalls? Um, so that's a two-part question. Uh, first part about shares, uh, that's a negotiation or conversation between the writers um, and session ID. I, I've heard of it. I've never used it. Um, my understanding, it's like an app where you can say like what the splits are, um, but you can also do that via songwriter split agreements, um, which again is a custom drafted thing or you know, an indie artist resource thing, they're available. Um, but the, I feel like there's this, I had this on a, another speaking event I did recently where people were thinking like the writer's share and the publisher share are like these two different splits that you have to negotiate and stuff. And that's not how it works. I mean, it's that part of it is, unless you're assigning a partial ownership to a publisher, when you're talking about writer share and publisher share, you're usually talking about income. Um, so unless, uh, who's this, Atlee, uh, is saying, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they're keeping half, you know, half of it is the so-called publisher share and then the, the writers are just splitting the other half and then that way, you know, in a performance situation, they're getting paid directly from the PRO. Um, but that's, you know, that that's going to end up being done by agreement. So, um, and usually whereby the person keeping the publisher share is then the publisher. So that would be a separate type of agreement than just a songwriter split agreement. But just to go for splits, like Michael and writing a song together and we want to you know dole out the percentages like we would use can just use a songwriter split agreement for that if we're both owning and administering our own shares which we wouldn't have to worry about any of that because if you and i wrote a song together nobody would listen to it it just wouldn't matter it's like it didn't exist <laughs> are you kidding we're gonna write the next big hit <laughs> uh we can only fantasize um what about using an, an app 
like session ID or anything like it. I'm not just going to pin it solely on them. What are the legal ramifications of how that would hold up in court? If you did have good digital documentation of Mm. the writer splits at the, at the moment or um, yeah, writer splits. Um, I think that it's supposed to like be in lieu of a paper split sheet kind of thing, but I, I'm not aware of any, you know, court situations, cases that, you know, people have presented something like that as evidence. So I don't know how it would hold up. I mean, it is a, you know, physical memorialization, uh, you know, where it's written down. And uh, so I would imagine that there, that that would, you know, at least be able to be submitted, um, you know, as part of, part of evidence and stuff because it's you know kind of more in a digital just in a digital form than in a paper form um but you know again i don't know that there's any precedent for that and just so you know if you've never been through a lawsuit by the time you get to the point where you'd be able to present that evidence you will have lost your house because you'll have to cash it in to pay the legal fees yeah i mean it's not like television where you get to walk in and go look your honor i've got it on an app and the right. judge and the judge goes oh case over dude bye right. see ya. <laughs> you're you're yeah, talking like yeah you're talking a year and a half before the judge would even see it and you would have spent you know 500 bucks an hour on litigator to get to that point so be really careful out there um all right well that is everything on the stuff that was sent in beforehand i've seen a couple people post questions in the chat but if they would be so kind as to repost them so I don't have to scroll back through and find them. And if you would be so kind as to type the word question in all caps before it so it just jumps right out at me, that would be much appreciated. Here's one from Hey Hey. I collaborated with a new lyricist, but it didn't work out. Hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) I've been waiting to use that. Oh, Liz has more questions. Come on in, Liz. Um, I may or may not get to those, but thank you. Uh, okay, question again from Hey Hey. I collaborated with a new lyricist, but it didn't work out. My music was fully written beforehand. Can I send an agreement to dissolve the collaboration so my music reverts to me? Thank you. Mm, you can, but why doesn't he own it if it was all fully written then the question is was it a joint work with the lyricist or was it a derivative work because a joint work has to be intended to be a joint work at the time so explain the difference between i've heard this come up before where somebody said Mm -hmm. hey i wrote this thing and then somebody along with me did a new version of it, which I would think is a derivative, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the derivative stands as its own entity? Yeah, so derivative work is its own entity and its own copyright, but um, only the new elements uh, are what's protected under that copyright. Like the thing we talked about earlier, right? Exactly, with the Civil War song. So the, um, but in this case, the original version was is not in the public domain so the original version would be protected under its copyright and then the derivative works new elements would be protected under 
The derivative works copyright. You're going to love me for this. This is why you need to register your copyrights with the Copyright Office because you <laughs> need proof of creation, date of creation. So if your original work predated the um, derivative work and at some point your collaborator, co-writer on the derivative says, hey, that's my song. I worked on that. Well, yes, you did. You worked on a derivative version after the fact, but this was created before you and I ever worked together. So right and right <laughs> and usually when registering the copyright for derivative work you will exclude the material from the original work so you will say um you know this works based on original work registration number blah 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 um so then they know that it's a derivative of the uh, of, of the original work do you know since covid is a thing you can't go anymore in public that's considered There's a lot of a, things you can't do. <laughs> that's considered an act of violence now. Um, okay, it, it, I actually heard about this. That uh, it dates back to a legal case where somebody who knew that they had HIV spat in somebody else's face, and and that was considered to be like a lethal weapon or an attack mm. with a. Anyway, the law is so fascinating when you're not having to write checks. Um, <laughs> All right, here's another one. This one. Oh, my goodness. Where did it go? It's like I I had my feed frozen for a second. Here we go. Uh, this is from Steve Leeds. Question, Aaron, how would I copyright master sound recordings, in other words, quarter-inch tapes, of rehearsals and live shows, all cover tunes of my band from 50 years ago? SR application, <laughs> but they're from 50 years ago. I don't, I don't know. That might be because uh, sound recordings only had federal protection since after 1970 or since February of 1972. So they were created before. I don't know. That would be something to research, I think. I don't want to give a snap yeah. answer to that one. Okay, um, next time we have Aaron on, which will be in about five months, we'll tell you. <laughs> uh, all right, this was from John Hope. If I sign a song to a non-exclusive listing with an exclusive, will an exclusive listing. So in other words, taxi, if he makes a submission to a taxi listing that's non-exclusive um, and he signs with that entity, that publisher, and then would like to For submit it. For a non-exclusive library, you mean? Yeah, non-exclusive library. And then okay. let's say a month later, after that deal has been signed, would like to submit it to an exclusive library. Would they gleefully accept that song, even though it's got a non-exclusive deal with another company? I would say, I mean, I can't speak for whatever library, but I would say no, because they would want the the non-exclusive deal terminated because right. if they want to sign the song that has to be exclusive that's kind of one of the pitfalls of being with non-exclusive libraries like can you get out of that non-exclusive deal if you get an exclusive opportunity we actually had a case uh where somebody i want to say it was like 27 songs or something signed to a non-exclusive library 
and nothing was happening. They were in there for a year or two, you know, as is typical. A lot of times the music will sit there, lay there like a lox until somebody needs what you've mm. got in that catalog. Person was probably a little impatient. And then along came um, an exclusive library that probably got a piece of music from that person through a taxi submission and went, this is great. Do you have anything more like that? Hmm, why, yes, I do, but it's with this non-exclusive library. Mm -hmm. So they reached out to a non-exclusive library, exercised their right to withdraw from that relationship, to put the stuff in the exclusive catalog. But really, even though it was technically and legally correct to do so on a business level, and as one of my attorneys, who I've since fired many years ago, always said to me, there are legal aspects and business aspects of any deal, and you have to consider both. In this case, my opinion, non-legal of course, uh, is that the person shouldn't have taken that stuff out of that first deal because now that first library's got to reach out to everybody who's got their catalog in their edit bay bins at all these various you know, uh, reality shows and say, please remove these 27 things. Now there may have been language in the contract that gave them kind of a, a sunset deal for lack of a better word where the stuff for a period of a year was they would still participate mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it just looks bad and personally the way I would have approached that if I were the writer of that music is I would have said that stuff is signed to another entity I don't want to rock their boat however I can create a bunch of new material that's like virtually identical to this I mean not like identical like it's copying it but I can create you another 27 songs that will be that good in that genre that you will love. Let me do three, send them, and see if you like them. That way, you've got 27 in the old catalog and 27 in the new catalog. Yay. She's nodding again. I'm nodding again. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Not nodding off. Okay. Okay. Uh, this one's from David Clipperton. Question, are there any books similar to yours focusing on the Canadian market? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, there certainly might be, but I, I don't know of any offhand because I, I don't focus on the Canadian market. So any that would idea be an internet search. Any idea if the uh, rules and mm -hmm. regs as far as copyright and music legalities are dramatically different in Canada than they are in the U.S. or are they pretty similar? It depends, it depends what aspect you're talking about. I mean, some of them are kind of similar and some of them are not. So, I'm I, nodding. you know, it's, it's not a broad generalization that I can say, yeah, it's similar. No, it's not. It's, yeah. This one is from Aaron Northern and his question is, hi, Aaron. Very cordial. <laughs> if a library goes out of business for whatever reason, what happens with the music publishing that's signed over to that library? Is the library obligated to inform you? Good um, question. Well, I think it depends if it's exclusive or non-exclusive too. Um, you know, and whether you've transferred any copyright to these people uh, or not. Because I think that would make a difference in what would happen. I mean, they should inform you, but that doesn't mean that they will. Um, yeah, I, can, I mean, that's... I can only yeah. think of one case in 30 years of running taxi where a library just closed its doors and didn't notify anybody, mm. didn't sell the catalog. 
if it's an exclusive catalog, they will absolutely do their level best to monetize that and sell it to another library. And I think Aaron will back me up on this, that the last three, four, five years, people have been gobbling up catalogs as often as they can and at really good prices yeah. as well. So that's the probability, I would say, on the exclusive side. Non-exclusive, what happens? Does a non-exclusive catalog have anywhere near the value that an exclusive one does for the catalog owner when it's time to sell? I would say no, because you have all these claiming conflict problems and stuff. I mean, you have other people that have skin in the game on these um, on these same songs. I mean, most, you know, like big, big companies, you know, they don't want to have to do, you know, they want to be exclusive. So I would say that the value would be lower. Um, same as where some supervisors don't want to license from non-exclusive libraries because they don't want to deal with like, you know, who pitched it. I hear less about that being an issue than I did several yeah. years ago. It, it hardly ever pops up anymore. And I'm not really sure why, if it hasn't turned out to be that problematic or if people have just gotten bored of the topic and moved on, I don't know. Well, maybe that, I mean, maybe they just, there are a lot of non-exclusive libraries that so maybe they're just like resign themselves to it, but um, you know, preference. Um, I'm not sure this is a question for a music attorney. I'll ask it anyway. Uh, this is from D. Neal, and the question is, is there still money to be made by an indie artist, and what is the step to take? So yeah, just tell them exactly how to well, make money. <laughs> right, okay, step one. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I think there is still money to be made by indie artists. Um, there's not one path to get there. Um, but I think that, I mean, there are a lot of indie artists that make a living off of their music and sometimes that's streaming and YouTube and things like that. Sometimes that's sync. Uh, sometimes it's a combination. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, having a close knit fan community that, you know, will do Kickstarters and buy special insider membership packages and those kind of things. So it really, it varies per artist, but there are a lot of artists that I think that are, you know, making a living. I think so as well. One thing has remained true. When I first got into the industry in the mid seventies, baby bands that worked 12 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week, were generally the baby bands that got the, the attention of major labels, got signed, and ended up having at least a shot at making money or having a, a, a smash hit. I find the same thing to be true today. Even though the internet levels the playing field, it democratizes the music industry and all those great little catchphrases. It does. But you, it doesn't make it like, oh, well, now it's really easy to make money as an indie artist. No. The opportunities are there. The tools are there. The, the vehicles to get out there are there. But you still have to work your butt off to do it. Yeah, because, it, um, I mean, it's kind of like 
there's two sides of it. There's the side that, yeah, it is the internet has opened it up to anybody to try to make it because, you know, you don't have to be signed to a major label. But then on the other side of that is there's so many more people that are out there. So you have to make yourself known, you know, amongst all those other people. I'm going back to the pinball machine at Criteria Studios, 1975. How do you make a hit record? <laughs> I told you, you've heard this story like how many times now? Ten? So I asked, for those of you who haven't heard it ten times, I asked these two legendary producers who I didn't really, I knew they were important, but I didn't know how important they were. And I naively said to them, how do you make a hit record? And, and either Tom Dowd or Reef Martin, they stopped their pinball game. They were really kind of pissed off at me because they were having a great game uh, going for the world championship, I'm sure. And um, one of them said to me, on the other side of this wall, we have one of the top artists in the world. We've got the best session players, best studio, best record label, everything you could want. And we don't know if we're making a hit record or not. And then he pointed at a big plate glass window and there was a, a row of warehouses like a quarter of a mile away down the street. And he said, somewhere in that warehouse down there is a kid with a four track and he's making a hit record. You know why? And I went, uh-uh. And he said, because he wrote a hit song. That's how you make a hit record. Mm. So if it you're an It all starts with the song. <laughs> it does. So if you're an indie artist and you're looking for the easy way to riches, Write a song that everybody thinks is a hit, not just your mom. Okay, moving <laughs> on. Uh, this is a good question from Justin Bird. Uh, for theme songs on TV slash film, how is ownership decided? Between the show and the writer? or Pre Presumably, the, I would usually think. Usually the show's going to own it. And tell them why that is, because there is a good reason for that, other than their well, greedy. You mean from like a contractual perspective, um, like i.e., it's usually a work for hire, or they, or they do an agreement where they get the copyright assigned to them if it was a previously written song. Is that I've what you're always asking? I've always heard that they do that because at some point they want to do a DVD series or license it, license yeah. a show, and they don't want to get holed up. It's like, oh my gosh, we've got a great deal where we can make $100 million licensing friends forever all over the world just this year alone. Yeah. And, and uh, we don't control the publishing on the theme song. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that person can hold us up and say, write me a check for $10 million or you're not getting yeah. the theme song. And that's integral to the whole package, I would think. Yeah, I mean, that's one reason. The other reason is sometimes these shows, um, you know, have their own publishing units if it's like a larger major company or or they'll do a deal with a major publishing company to do the administration of whatever musical copyrights that they own. So they are, you know, they have a publishing aspect there. But yeah, I mean, it's exactly not only is it another asset for them, but, but yeah, they don't want to be held up, um, you know, in any sort of deal or, you know, and, and I've been involved in those situations where a show needs to go buy out uh, the rights from someone Ouch. that did because they can't, they can't be held up, you know, if they go, and sometimes the network will require it too. It just, 
It really just depends. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, most likely the show is always going to own the theme. There are even some TV shows that are so music-centric and music is so integral to the success and the, and the tone of the show and the whole fabric of the show that they will ask for publishing on stuff that they license to put in scenes, not because they're necessarily greedy, although I'm sure making extra money doesn't hurt, but for that same reason that if that show ever goes to DVD, streaming, whatever, they need absolute control of that music because it can't be replaced because the song may get played 10 times as let's say people are, are writing the song as part of the script. And then later they're playing the song for their record label head in the script. And then later they hear the song on the radio the first time in the script. So that many uses of a song, you really can't mm. replace it with a sound alike or something of a similar vibe, as we say. Um, they've got to control it. So I, I've had people that have run listings with Taxi explain to me why they want to, why they want the publisher's share, mm. and kind of makes sense, even though I think they're also a little greedy. Anyway. Um, this one is from Glory Ray Media. Question is, this is currently my label name, meaning Glory, Ray, Glory Ray's Media, but I want to register with my PRO as a publisher. Do I have to set up a publishing company as an LLC, or will my current sole proprietorship suffice? Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the publishing names, I, I mean, if the liability protection and the tax issues make sense, you know, you can certainly set up a, a LLC or corporation or business entity, but that's, you know, separate issues to consider. Mm -hmm. um, but when setting up a publishing entity with ASCAP BMI, it's really just a name. So it's a doing business as whatever publishing. Um, so it's what we call fictitious business name. And, um, you know, there are plenty of sole proprietorships that uses, use them. So it's, you know, whatever sole proprietor doing business as whatever publishing parentheses PRO um, is how we would put it into a contract. This is a question that I bet you are supremely suited to answer. It's one of my own. Um, <laughs> if you've done a, a will and a trust, let's say mm. you're 45 years old, you've got a couple of kids and you're being financially and legally proactive and you're setting up a trust, you put your house in the trust, um, any other assets you might have in the trust, yet people often forget to put their music in the trust. Mm -hmm. Am I crazy to think that just on the off chance that their music becomes very valuable someday, the people who are going to inherit the ownership of those copyrights would be much better off from a tax, in a tax position by having the stuff in the trust. Am I correct in that? Well, I can't give tax on the tax part of it, right. um, but from a music copyright perspective yes we like the the titles to be in the trust because yeah then they they are you know you know what's there that can pass through whoever it's supposed to pass through to um and you're correct most people forget 
to put the music in. It ends up in what's called the residue. And then it's like, okay, what are we going to do with this? Who is it going to go to? Um, you know, there's like other factors that come into it and stuff. But yeah, I mean, when I'm working with any clients that are putting together their estate plans, I work with their estate planner to put their music into the trust and structure it the way that it makes sense for them and who they want the ownership to go to and who they want the royalties to go to, um, all that stuff. So yeah, I do that regularly with um, working with clients and their estate planners. Um, and it makes things much easier later once once that music is actually passing to the, I have a, I can tell with a glass straw. <laughs> I can tell that uh, so, I hit when I move my hand. Um, <laughs> why is that so funny, Michael? <laughs> uh, just that you had to explain it. We could tell well, just by the sound. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that you were so. <laughs> Hey, once um, an audio engineer, always an audio engineer. Always an audio engineer. There That's you right. Go. So, uh, yeah, but it makes things much easier. So we we like to to do that and I advocate for that because otherwise you know it's the person has passed away and then it's you know you have to kind of unravel the mess sometimes so yeah so anybody that's thinking of an estate plan it's a good idea yeah not enough people do good comprehensive estate planning it's not no. cheap and it's not easy and you have to update especially if you have children especially if you have kids they grow up, circumstances change. Maybe the first draft of the the documents are talking about where the money goes because the kids are going to a relative and you want the money to go with the kids. So the relative's like, okay, we can afford to send these kids to college. Then the kids are like grown and married and circumstances mm -hmm. change. So take that money and blow it. Don't give it to the kids. <laughs> Uh, here's a there's question. Michael's advice. <laughs> yeah, there's Michael's advice. There's a, here's a question from Lamar Franklin. I think this might be our last one of the day. Can a separate copyright be enforced for an instrumental and a separate for the same instrumental with lyrics and a singer recording it? Uh, potentially, yeah. So it depends how they're registered. I mean, if the instrumental is registered and then the lyric version is registered, those would be two separate registrations. I've got a follow-on question because I've been asked this okay. a couple times and I'm not sure I gave the right answer then. People say to me, so if I've signed an instrumental to an exclusive production music library and then one day a lyric pops into my head and I sing the lyric and now I've got a lyric version of it, can I sign that with another library even though the instrumental version is signed to an exclusive or vice versa? It could well, be that the, the lyric version was signed first and then they decide to do an instrumental only mix. Well, I'd say they're kind of two separate things. So the lyric first with just the instrumental, I would say that's less likely. For an instrumental composition that later has lyrics added, I would say it depends who still owns the copyright. Um, but also I would say that there's, even if the library doesn't own the copyright, they, I, would, I would say they would still not be happy about it. So, um, Not happy know, in being sued, you, yeah. Well, what you said is, you know, kind of there's the legal aspect and there's the business aspects and stuff. So, um, so yeah, I mean, technically it would be a separate copyright, but then it's, 
you know, it's the same music behind the lyrics. So, um, but again, it depends if the library owns the copyright or not, because then that then it's totally different. Because the writer doesn't own that copyright anymore to the instrumental. We've got one more, enough time for one more quickie. And this one's from John Grenet, I believe, or Granite. Um, let's go with Grenet, sounds French. Um, question is, if my spouse is the executor of my will, can she still get royalties to my work after I die? Uh, it depends what the, what the document says. Yeah, I mean, so, being, I mean, being maybe, an executive... but it's also a spouse, so, I mean, that's, like, the kind of next person in the, like, intestate succession. So, it really, you know, but I would say, that, you know, the executor doesn't necessarily mean beneficiary, so it depends what the document says. And I'm not an estate planner, by the way, I'm just saying. It, I, I, out there, but. I could not be in a, in a room full of lawyers and have somebody say, in taste... Intestate, in intestate succession without busting out in laughter, only, only because I can find perverted humor in almost anything. And that sounds like something you need to get removed when it gets inflamed. I don't know. Anyway, um, always a delight having you on the show. As I, Thank you. I've said many times there are only two lawyers in the world that, that I actually really genuinely like, and Aaron is one of them. Um, and just so you know, I can give her, a, I don't know, an endorsement. Um, I recently needed a music attorney for something. Who did I hire? You're looking at her, baby. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and I know many music attorneys uh, having been in the industry for many, many years. So, uh, and the project I was working on was unusual. Um, not exactly like any, you know, it wasn't. Like any other contract, she had to do deviate from normal stuff, and she actually conceptually got it and was able to help us move through how to handle it, which is, you know, a lot of lawyers are copy and paste. They really are, and uh, they only know what they know and really don't have to think a lot about other stuff, so it was refreshing that uh, my partner on that project and I were able to like talk it through and say, well, this is how we envision it. And she got it and we figured it out. So yay you. Um, Thank you. Good job. So please mark it in your book, the weekend of November 4th, 5th or 6th. Okay. One of those days you will be on stage at the road rally. Um, by the way, how, uh, can you present a good argument against NFTs? I've got somebody that's gonna host a panel uh, debating NF music NFTs. And he said, do you know anybody that would be good at presenting the opposing point of view? Um, I w are you asking me to just say yes or no, or are you asking me to present the point of view right no, now? No, just, just a yes or no. Oh, um, I can point out some aspects that may be problematic, but I don't know that they would be like a full argument against them. All right, so maybe... You can talk offline if you want. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I can envision this panel in my head. I actually have an old friend from 45 years ago that's like, you know, one of the top five experts in the world on NFTs. And he happens to come from a music industry background before he mm. became a, a strong one, before he became a financial advisor. So I'm thinking we could put together a pretty heavy-duty panel that would be like 
worthy of transcribing and getting it published somewhere because mm -hmm. we'd have a lawyer, you know, we can put a publisher on there, NFT guy, and then me asking the funny questions. All right, um, ladies and gentlemen, um, Aaron Jacobson, the one, the only, the amazing <laughs> Aaron Jacobson. Yeah. And thank you to all of you who sent in your questions on time. Thank you uh, to the audience members who uh, asked some really good questions in, in the... Yeah, good questions this time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not like, how do I get in the music industry? Um, all right, and we will see you guys next week. I have no idea what the show's going to be because I've got two things, two possibilities. I'm going to see which one crosses the finish line first. Aaron, thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye, everybody. Hey.